Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me today is David Maron of Global Forecaster. The subject for this podcast, Global Investing at a Time of War. The Independent Research Forum promotes over 300 high-quality independent research and alternative data providers from around the world who produce a variety of investment-related advisory services, both macro and micro. Some are global, some are country-specific, some are sector-specific, many are stock pickers. Currently, when there is a lot of near-term uncertainty in the global financial markets, it is easy to lose sight of the lessons of history and the megatrends that are impacting on bond, equity, forex and commodity markets. I'm therefore very pleased that once again we're joined today by David Marin, the founder of Global Forecaster, who has a well-established track record of linking long-run historic trends and human behaviour to successful short-term and long-term investment decisions. David Murren is a polymath who is renowned for his development of a unique and effective set of behavioural models whilst at JP Morgan that have been used to predict financial markets in an effective and profitable way. David's long career has been focused on finding deep-seated patterns in history and using them to understand and accurately predict both the geopolitical dynamics and the financial markets. Now at Global Forecaster, David Marin provides actionable real-time market analysis combined with a unique geopolitical overview, which has a focus on profitable asset allocation decisions. David, welcome back. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the advisory service that is provided by Global Forecaster. Hi, David. It's great to be back with you again. In effect, Global Forecaster is focused on two layers of interest. One is the geopolitical scenarios, and we look at those outcomes and dynamics using the theories first expounded in Breaking Code of the History in 2009, which are proven to predict all sorts of things that people couldn't normally predict. Every election in the US and the UK for 20 years, essentially the decline of America, the rise of China, and the fact that we predicted World War III would start in 2022, almost 20 years ago, based on our underlying K-wave cycles, which we'll talk more about. And the second layer is using price analysis on some 80 macro markets and 200 shares to create this complex overlay, which allows us then to time the bigger pictures and bring them right the way into short-term trends, reversal points, and entry points. And our goal in this process is to ensure that we have tight entry points, which are usually contrarian, which then, if they start to work the way we expect, start to move into trend-following mode, and then we exit the trade essentially at the end of the peak and reverse it using contrarian methodology. So it's a duality between contrarian and trend-following, linear and lateral thought. And what we seek to do in, in our work across all domains is to combine a lateral way of thinking about the way the world is unfolding which is much more quantum mechanical than Newtonian, but then also then focus on the linear discipline of the probabilities and then discerning which ones are most likely to happen with a collective linear thought process. So it's a duality between linear and lateral, and our clients tend to be mainly from the linear side, they want more of a lateral perspective, and from the lateral side, they want more of a linear perspective because of our combination approach. But the net process has been incredibly alpha generative across all of our macro sectors over the past five years. And it includes macro and long-short outcomes too, which have also been immensely successful. So 
what does your analysis of mega trends and the five stages of empire tell you about the economic, political and geopolitical outlook for the United States of America? Well, when I first expounded the five stages of empire model, David, which was, you know, regionalization driven by expanding population, a regional civil war, which militarized and lateralized society, expansion to empire driven by a lateral thought process that was expansive, then reaching a point of maturity and to the peak, where in fact the lateral people started to give way to a more linear institutional process as the institutions of empire were built, moving into overextension and then decline. I described America as going to decline in 9-11. And you can imagine in 2003 and 2004, when I was on CNBC presenting this, most people thought I was absolutely crazy. And the obvious answer was, how could America fall? And more importantly, who would replace it? And I argued it would be China. And China would replace it and accelerate in ways that we couldn't imagine at the time. There would be an arms race after there would be a great industrialization transfer. And that arms race would lead to potentially World War Three, starting in 2022 into the peak of 2030, which we'll talk a little bit more about. So America itself, if it was in the fifth stage of decline after 9-11, it is now in truly late stage decline. All of the qualities that I predicted, which include a number of things, super money printing, and money printing is, is an innocuous word, but essentially what money printing has enabled America to do in a very sophisticated form through the issuance of debt and then through quantum mechanisms is essentially perpetuate and compensate for a lack of productivity that's real. I would love to find an economist who could tell me exactly what the unleveraged real growth of America is right now. And my guess is it's probably around 0.1 or 0.2 if you're lucky, because the leverage is so great due to this system. This system is much more insidious than we realize. What it does is it perpetuates systems which really are non-adaptive because as they become less productive, it compensates with leverage. And that process means that lateral thinking, innovative, adaptive thinking just isn't allowed into the system. It's perpetuated by more linear thought processes. And essentially, the system runs out of road. And we are running out of road right now. The road is never called by an empire internally. It's called by external forces. And we'll come on to those. So the political situation is correspondingly dire. It is the idea that the system is fractured into two halves. The Republicans are unrecognizable as a wealth creation party. They become something completely different, hijacked by Trump and his narcissistic self-agenda, which seems to be remarkably allied to Putin's for, for some nefarious reasons. And on the other side, obviously, we've got the Democrats who become super wealth distributors in the form of Biden, pushing social care and debt through the roof. The debt levels are unsustainable. The political situation is unsustainable. And at the same time, America has been eclipsed in terms of its military power. 20 years ago, it was a proper hegemony. No one could challenge it or no combination of countries could challenge it. Today, we're in an environment where it's withdrawn from Afghanistan precipitously, which I argued at the time was the beginning of the ready, set, go moment for the challenge from hegemonic systems like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, grouping together, and it has been. Our failure to basically help Ukraine eject Russia, which much as Americans would like to think is nothing to do with them, has everything to do with them because empires require their borders to be protected. And if their borders are impinged and compressed, the empire in itself can't last because it lives in its mature state with only marginal returns, only marginal dollarization effects. So you squeeze a little bit on the dollarization effects and the whole system implodes. 
So on every single level, America is challenged. And as I will talk about a little more, David, its military is no longer preeminent or predominant. And China holds in its hand the ability to strike America in the most horrendous way on a Pearl Harbor steroidal effect that really is hugely destructive. And I'm not convinced that America can fight back or control the Asian basin under those circumstances. It sounds as if the main threat to America is potentially coming from China. So what does your analysis tell you about the economic and political outlook for China and how might that impact on China's relationship with the island of Taiwan? So just going back a little bit, this is bigger than the American-Chinese divide and we must really frame it in terms of democracy versus autocracy. It's a struggle that's been going on since the age of Athens and Sparta the idea that democracy versus hierarchy would struggle. Hierarchy is the control of a system by one person, and democracy basically invests in the individual to maximize their output. And interestingly enough, they're most likely coincident with sea powers versus land powers for hierarchy. And that trend and that process has seen democracy spread around the world with American and British empires and their legacies in a way we couldn't have imagined. But this is still the continuation of that struggle. So China's struggle against America is not just China the nation against America the nation. It's basically the two hegemonic systems that seek to rule and control with very different mythology. And China's story itself goes back all the way to the Boxer Revolution in the beginning of its new cycle. And that was the first identification of its own renationalization, the removal of Western influence through the Boxers, in effect. And they moved on to a civil war, which was run by the communists over the nationalists. Now, for the Chinese, which is a land power, it's hierarchical. The subtle differences between nationalism and communism, they were subtle because they were still hierarchical either way. But the system then came out of its civil war and many people would turn around and say, oh, China's always been peaceful. If they just look at history and saw the way China interacted with its neighbors from the end of its civil war and just under the 1950s, the Korean War and onwards, it was at war with its neighbors until the mid 70s. And finally, when American power reasserted itself, there was a glass ceiling. And that glass ceiling meant that China couldn't expand physically anymore. It tried one last time in the third Taiwan Straits crisis, but American power was overwhelming when it sailed two carriers and a mew through the Straits. So he came up with another plan. And the other plan was to seduce the West, to invest in China's industrial base, to strip the West of its IP through espionage and through manufacturing, and ensure that China then became the great manufacturing power of the world. And when the time came, it could use that manufacturing base to use it in an arms race that the West couldn't compete with. And we are well and truly into that phase. Part of the process that the Chinese did was they seduced the West into thinking that with a carrot, if we made them capitalists, they would become democratic. And that was an illusion. That was never going to happen. It was The seduction was such that we in the West invested in them. We kept our inflation lower at a time when it should have been going higher. We gave them our industrial base. And what we wouldn't give them, they stole from us through massive espionage systems. And they are now and have been, since Trump confronted them in 2018, in a much more overt mode of direct challenge. And that direct challenge involves the largest navy in the world. It involves rocket systems which are designed to saturate carrier defences. And we've seen for the first time, essentially, ballistic anti-ship missiles being used by the Houthis, which are far less capable than the DF-21s and 26s of China. But they still show that only certain types of American destroyers can interdict an anti-ship ballistic missile. 
and they're a direct challenge to American maritime hegemony. So this is well and truly in play. The alliance around China has grown. Think of it at the center of a wheel and the spokes are Russia, North Korea and Iran. And as this mechanism continued through COVID, and I would argue at the same time in March 2020, the Chinese did something which very few people understood or saw. And that was they emulated the Germans, who in 1936, after invading the Ruhr, essentially put their whole economy into a war footing on the basis that they would be bust by 1940 or at war by 1939. And essentially, they enacted that strategy with huge resource compiling of resources because they knew they could be blockaded by the Royal Navy, as it had been at the end of the First World War. And that's exactly what China's done. It's stockpile resources. It's preparing itself for conflict. And if you listen to Xi's translations in his own language, which don't really come back to us in the West, they are as belligerent as the Nuremberg rallies. So the problem for China is having executed that strategy in 2020, it's now at a moment where it's either bust by the end of 24, early 25, or it goes to war. And everything and every action we see by Xi, whether it's the removal of key people in his army, which looks like they've been removed because they're dishonest, it isn't. They're already CCP members, and the real issue is will they follow his orders to war or not? And what China's planned is a lightning war, like all hegemonic challenges, unlike Russia, which was a different context. The conflict that they plan is a Pearl Harbor on steroid strike against America, and every weapon system they built attests to that plan and its capability to saturate American and Japanese defenses. So we're coming up to a very, very, very critical period a period when China basically is shedding what's left of its camouflage of Western economic dynamics. If you just look at the A50, which we've been short of since the high, been running that trade really nicely, it's at a point of acceleration. And we saw some Chinese intervention, but that's just not enough to change this. So watching that move, watching it break lower, I think is a hallmark of the shift of Chinese psychology and potentially makes them very aggressive as we come into the first two quarters of this year. And that pertains that this is no longer just about Taiwan. Taiwan was initially about reunification, the end of the civil war, the completion of of the conquest of communism over nationalism for China. But now it's so much more. Their ambitions go right the way out to the second island chain, and they exclude America and Japan from the industrial base of the region. So this is now a regional war that's much bigger. And if you're a Chinese planner, you know that the Japanese will join even if Biden doesn't want to. You know that once the Japanese join, they drag America in. So any action against Taiwan, which could never be lightning, by the way, is much more likely to be blockade followed by invasion. So there's plenty of time for response. But that process means that China is fighting Japan and America inevitably. So you move forward to the preemptive model, which is why they designed their systems to operate like that and have done for the past 20 years. And they've developed some very unique technology, whether it's anti-ship missiles, which can be fired on mass or hypersonic weapons like the DF-17, to which there is no defense for the U.S. carrier groups. So it's a very significant period we're moving into, and one of great instability. And for Xi, his decisions are essentially he faces the weakest leadership that he could ever dream of in the form of Biden. He basically is at a point where his economy has reached a, a brick road. And even today, you can see the decree where companies develop Maoist militaires to control themselves and their population has just been enacted. The West would like to see that as controlling civil unrest. I think we should see it as much something more sinister. 
We're seeing it in the in the A50 in terms of the behavior of the shedding of the camouflage of Western Western capitalism. So all in all, China is at a critical moment, a go no go moment, where if it doesn't go, it will basically, with negative demographics and other problems, shrink and have lost its moment of challenge, or it goes and initiates a final stage into what I would describe an ongoing World War Three at the moment. This increasing friction between China and the US is already having a significant impact on global supply chains. And some economies are benefiting from those developments. And would you say the ones which are benefiting most would be India, Japan, Mexico and Turkey, all of which are quasi-democracies in one way or another? Look, the countries you mentioned are all really on the upward curve of their five stages of empire model, and they're expansive. So they tend to basically benefit in most situations one way or the other. In terms of replacement manufacturing capability, obviously Mexico sits in the North American continent, and I can see that process only becoming stronger. India is a huge potential threat to China, although not at the moment, but its its whole process of demography and the capability of Indians to produce in time will be like Russia was to the way that the Second World War operated, in effect. I suspect they'll be later to join any conflict or challenge. They'll hold off for maximum effect, but the, you know they are essentially going to join in on the side of democracy because that's the only way that the penny will fall in that case. Turkey's a more complicated issue in that the Turks are the most productive people. I have close association with them, huge admiration for them, They've been poorly led. They already have jumped into super hyperinflation and found ways to adapt, and they're still productive. So the Turks are productive full stop. And I think you pick three regions that would naturally be productive. And the more entropic the world is, the more that productivity on a relative basis will shine through. Can Japan be a beneficiary of this, or is it too close to America and the problems in the relationship between China and America? Japan sits inside the second island chain and therefore under the the models we've created you know for the way we expect china to behave that it is a target for invasion as in south korea that i think the vision for xi's china is to take everything out to the third island chain if possible and secure a similar economic zone as the japanese did and then there will be a huge period of consolidation where resources and this massive industrial base for autocracy come together to create weapons and ships on a scale that America did in the Second World War. So I think the conflict that the Chinese plan is not an outright quick conflict. It's probably a decade long. It involves a consolidation of the third island chain and then consolidation of the industrial base and then something greater when their tools of war have been rolled out. So I don't think what we're entering or what we started in 2022 is going to be over quickly. Sadly, I think it's with us for at least a decade. And so the paradigms of our last 20 years are very well and truly going to have to change for us to adapt to the challenges in the West that we face with autocracy. You mentioned earlier that in many ways a world war has already begun. And if we look at what's happening in Europe and your analysis of the five stages of empire, what does your model say about Western Europe, which appears to be in a period of secular decline? Well, during the Brexit debates, 
my argument was that Britain, funnily enough, had started a new cycle and had a chance to break away if it was effectively led, which subsequently it certainly hasn't been. But actually, we were leaving a ship that was sinking. The Titanic had been holed and it was not going to do very well. And that's essentially the whole of Europe, because Europe's demography at its core has been negative for some time. If it hadn't been for American power, I think it would have really just wobbled and imploded in completely ways we can't imagine. So the construct of Europe is artificial because agglomeration of systems requires expansive demographics at the core and Europe's had negative demographics. And looking at the way its economic policy works, which is highly protectionist, which again doesn't favour adaption. And we live at a time when technology's rate of change is only accelerating. So lack of adaptation is a doomsday thought process. We're looking at a system that's been slow to respond to basically the threat of Russia. In the case of Germany and the Eastern countries, some of them have been infiltrated to levels we couldn't imagine by Putin's influence. So only slowly are those cobwebs being shrugged off. The only thing I will say is that this period of conflict, my next book is coming out and it's all about breaking the code of wars. And it's a really the understanding that wars are intrinsic to human evolution and catalyze evolutionary jumps which of course goes against any of the vein that well, we don't like wars, why do they happen? Well, we should start with the question, why do they happen? And then look at what they're doing for us. And social advancement and evolution is part of that process. So conflicts create a forced adaptation. Either a system adapts or it goes under. And I think this period of 10 years of conflict is going to force Europe to adapt and maybe even rebirth itself in a way we can't imagine if it can get through the initial stages of its slumber. But everything is up in the air in, a, in an environment like this. And the biggest governor of this process is what I call the Kondratiev cycle. Oh, you're familiar, some of, your, some of you will be, with Kondratiev's work. So I call it the K-wave cycle, but it was way more than the observation that essentially interest rates surged every 56 years as commodities were constricted, which somehow brought about war. I've actually created a model which extends further than that initial observation. And it is that every 56 years there is indeed conflict, but the conflict doesn't start at the peak. It starts before the peak. And it's a, another way of thinking about it is a surge of entropy. So if any of you are unfamiliar with entropy, it's the physical physics construct of order going to disorder, of a universe that literally goes to zero energy from a point of energy, a box of matches jumping out of your hand onto the floor and spreading over it. That's entropy. We know entropy has been played backwards when the matches jump in the box, because that defines time going forward or backwards. So human systems, and this is a theory which I've added to my original theories in the past five years, it's human anti-entropy. The idea that we create social systems to create anti-entropy, to push back the disorder of the universe, is the driver why we create empires and super-empires. And that mechanism creates control over the world as we coherently develop new stages in technology and control our environment with some byproducts we didn't expect, like climate change, which again is feeding back into entropy. But this idea of social systems are anti-entropic. Now, if you look at the surges behind the K-wave conflicts, they're all about entropy. So one thing I will say is it isn't just about a surge that raises interest rates. It's a surge that creates chaos and disorder inside systems, between systems, outside systems. And that's the domain in which these great hegemonic conflicts take place every 112 years. 
Given the weakness in America and Western Europe, was it a weakness of the NATO alliance in recent years, one of the main reasons why President Putin initiated Russia's ongoing war with Ukraine? So the collapse of the, the Soviet Union and uh, you know the wall coming down, and I did a lot of work in Russia, a lot of investment, all the way up to 2005. So I watched its chaos, watched the arrival of Putin, and I finally stopped doing business when I realized that Putin killed people he didn't like, some of which were in close contact. And so I've always been aware of who he really was. He was an autocrat, a dictator of the most brutal kind. And anyone that can't understand or see that now really needs a proper wake-up call. But essentially, you're right. Now, if you think about how we treated Germany and Japan post the Second World War, we invested in them, we educated them, and they became great allies of democracy. In effect, Russia was never treated that way. It was almost shunned. And it was treated, I would say, exceptionally badly by America and with contempt. And so at the stage when Putin came in in 2000, he only saw with, of course, the low of the commodity cycle and Russia as a commodity economy, he only saw a viable, sustainable route through joining the EU. But of course, between 2002 and 2005 and seven, the commodity cycle started again. And suddenly he became aware that those sources of revenue were once more alive. And with it, a sense of independence, and with it, the ability to turn around and say, you guys haven't treated this process honorably, and you've incrementally moved into our territory. And so I think we were unjudicious in the process. If you look at 2014 and the chemical red line in Syria, there's no doubt that Obama was humiliated by Putin, both in the actions in Syria and also the article in the New York Times. And I think the product of that was the revolution in Ukraine, which then cascaded the next effect. So yes, there is cause effect, cause and effect. But I would say they are slightly different from the magnitude event of Putin enacting a large-scale invasion with such suffering of life. One doesn't equate to the other. But I would say that the West behavior has been very unconscious and there were other ways to basically handle the situation which integrated Russia rather than pushed it away. Although I, how dealing with Putin was always going to be a challenge, always because of his own agenda. Is the war in Ukraine now at a stalemate, which might result in a peace settlement or a ceasefire involving Ukraine having to give up some land? Well, let's go back a little bit to the kind of history. The reason why Putin took Crimea was because the oil and gas that sat off Crimea would have basically substituted his regime of feeding Europe with energy. So the removal of that threat came through the invasion of Crimea. Conversely, for Ukraine to become a fully independent nation, the access and controlling those supplies are, I think, quite critical. So I'm not sure that Crimea is a negotiable on either side. When you look at the way the war started, Putin started with a policy of escalate to de-escalate, i.e. I take the land, I drop a nuclear weapon, and then you don't do anything because you're a Western country and you're weak. Well, he was right. The West has been really weak. And his nuclear threats have cowed Biden and Sullivan, the national security advisor, to the point where they feared actually winning with Ukraine. So Ukraine was never given the tools last year for its counteroffensive to win it. And I would remind every listener that every military counteroffensive and combined arms operation has involved having air superiority. The idea that the Ukrainians could move forward through fixed defenses when the Russians actually had marginal air superiority was laughable. 
So I think that the last leader of the Ukrainian force was very smart when he sacrificed a company that went into a minefield to demonstrate they couldn't do it and then shifted to a more sort of covert process rather than direct confrontation, which didn't then encroach upon the air power Russia could provide. Essentially, he kept the main armoured forces that they were given by the West, and they still have them in the main. And I think the problem is that they just have been starved, not just by the Republicans and the Magda Republicans, which is just unbelievable to watch, but they've been starved of even even when we were giving them what we said we thought we were giving them, they just didn't have the weapons to win. And I don't believe the technology is actually creating a hiatus. If it was a fully global conflict with NATO, the results would be very different because we would enact air superiority, suppression of ground air defences, and then exactly as the Russians have done to the Ukrainians around Avika when they've got localised air superiority, they bomb them with glide bombs and they basically push them back with not only artillery but air superiority. And the fact that the Ukrainians don't have any air defences or enough to push them back shows how starved they are, not only of artillery, but critical air defence systems that could have changed the game plan. And one of the statistics that really sticks with me is the Ukrainians were given one American Patriot battery by the Americans and one by Germany. And America has more than 1,040 of those batteries in its inventory. And 18 of those systems would have given impunity to Ukraine. And it's a good example of they were actually denuded and prevented from receiving what they needed. And I think Biden and Sullivan's strategy was basically to wear both sides down to the point where they give up. That isn't going to happen. It's, I think, Biden's bloody stalemate. And now we've got the shoe on the other foot, thanks to the Magda Republicans, where the Ukrainians are really in trouble and they're hanging on with their fingernails until we can resupply them. Now, I think they will hold. And I think this struggle will continue. And it will continue until the Chinese join the conflict and then it will become a NATO struggle. So I do not see a peace treaty. I just see the process escalating and the Ukrainians hanging on much as Britain hung on before America joined the Second World War. Earlier, you mentioned the importance of Brexit. And when we think about the United Kingdom, is it in need of a charismatic, lateral thinking political leader to address the current lack of dynamism? And if so, are we looking at Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer or someone else to be that leader? So let's just look at the fascinating evolution of Britain. I have argued that it restarted a new cycle after the loss of the British Empire with Thatcher. She kickstart wealth creation and the whole generation, our generation, that really worked hard and believed in aspiration. And we got to the point where essentially... Brexit wasn't just a random moment through a few desperados. In terms of the five stages of empire model, it was a civil war that sought to lateralize Britain, to adapt it far better to the world around it, and break it out of the European paradigm that was constrained and constricted with the Titanic being holed into a global sense. And that was very obvious to see when you look at the, you know, the drivers of the global economy had gone to the east, well away from Europe. And the European economy was contracting and does contract by 1% every year. So there was a logic in that. And the person that, that led that charge was Boris Johnson, a very lateral individual and a good example that great leadership, great things are done by people that actually are lateral and linear. So Thatcher was lateral. She had a vision and she could also deliver with linear discipline thought. Boris Johnson was super lateral and had no linear logic whatsoever and was disastrous. 
He was also narcissistic, which didn't help because all declining systems in the West are affected by self over collective and narcissism is fairly rampant, which explains the phenomenon of Donald Trump in many ways. But essentially, we then went to the next stage and Liz Truss was a peculiar lady, but she did have, I would argue, based on the cycle of systems, all of the wealth generative constructs required to replace the ones that were not in place. So her policies were correct. The only growth would get us out of this, not the issuance of more debt and the status quo. But she was poor in her execution. And I would argue, and it's a, you know, maybe a little contemptuous, but what we saw was a last ditch clue of the linear section of British society pushing out the changes that would have changed the civil service, changed the way our whole institutions thought. And you only have to look at the MOD to see what a disastrous organization it is and how it's betrayed its nation and the defense of the realm. We see it in the health system everywhere. Our civil service, our leaders just do not think in an open lateral way and then apply linear discipline. They just are locked into railway tracks, which is managed decline in effect. So yes, we are now under the grip of the most linear leadership we could ever have, an uncharismatic technocrat who refuses to recognize the world as at war or spend money on defense and basically sat in the treasury and refused or couldn't even see interest rates rising, something we warned about because we saw this Kondratiev surge of inflation and as a result, we spend more money servicing debt than we do on defence, thanks to his poor decisions. A good example of a far too linear mindset failing in a, a lateral adaptive world. So we need a change, without doubt. Starmer isn't the man to lead us, and I don't think Sunak is. And one of the things I think about this year is if conflict escalates, as I anticipate, it's going to impact the way we elect leaders and see our leadership. Because would you want to be led by Starmer in war? Would you not want to be led by Sunak in war? I think no one would vote for that. So the question is, who might rise out of the system as a wartime leader, as happened with Zelensky in Ukraine? Sometimes it comes from nowhere. But right now, the West needs wartime leadership. And Churchill in the Second World War, arguably. Yes, exactly. Well, although, interestingly enough, there was a sort of sense of grooming. Even Chamberlain realised if it went wrong, then Churchill was the man. And, you know, so at least we had a, a plan B. At the moment, we don't have an anything plan. In fact, we haven't realised we need a plan, which just staggers me. And I think it's interesting that the politicians just refused to talk about defence. And it was up to the generals, coincident with NATO, to start to bring the issue of conscription to the fore. And I think that was the main driver about that, was to say to the public, this involves you. It involves your children. So either we spend more on defence or conscription is the obvious outcome. So we need to do both. And sadly, I suspect in time it may be necessary. The point that people don't realise is when war comes, then historically in both world wars, we spent over 50% of GDP on defence. So spending 10% now to try and desperately deter it and show that we are determined to deter it is far cheaper than the price you pay through conflict, let alone the loss of blood and children and care and families that, that goes with it. There are a couple of reasons why we live in denial in the West, and it actually affects the markets as we come on to some of your last questions, that why are we in such denial? There are a number of considerations. One is the world was in denial into 1914. And in fact, the relationship with Germany as a strategic ally for 100 years made it quite hard to think Germany would actually go to war with Britain. And the royal family attested to that with its German roots. So the other issue is there hadn't been a global war for 100 years since the Napoleonic Wars. There'd been localized conflicts like Crimea. There'd been a civil war in America, but that was somewhere else and relatively non-global. 
But the idea of a global war, no, that wasn't going to happen because everyone was so entwined with their trading. So we've got definitely that going on with China today. But there's something else which I think is quite interesting, and it's one of the detriments or detrimental qualities of money printing. As stock markets go up, dopamine surges through the collective system, and dopamine puts us to sleep, so we don't see the threats. So whilst they print money, which raises assets in a narrow, narrow way into the Magnificent Seven, essentially in that narrow containment still is a sense of dopamine, which means that we're not really at war, it's all okay, because look at the stock markets. So the stock markets are turning people off. And my studies of World War I and World War II, which are really quite fascinating, show that stock markets are incredibly good at predicting things like conflicts and turning points in conflicts. They don't predict very well going into the conflict, but they do predict the turning points of conflict, which is a topic which people can read a lot about on my site if they come and subscribe. You mentioned the importance of the Kondratiev wave and a sort of 50, 60 year cycle. What is that telling you about the outlook for commodities, for bonds, for equities, and indeed for forex, particularly the dollar? So it's a 56-year cycle. So the next peak is 2030, 2031. And historically, this sort of entropic buildup, which you know I describe as a pulse, which then afflicts hegemonic dynamics, it means that the buildup and the conflict start well before the peaks. And so the, the, those peaks, for example, so if you look at 1914, the peak was 1920. So six years before. If you look at where 22 is compared to 30, that's eight years before. And you look at the Napoleonic Wars, and it was about 10 years before. So we're conforming to that process. One of the things that I'm able to provide our clients is a detailed analysis of what this Kondratiev cycle looks like from 2000, the first surge up into 2010, the counter trend surge into 2020. And we are basically, if you take energy prices, in the beginning of the most inflationary part of the cycle. So I was able to predict inflation interest rates would rise back in 21 when no one saw it because that cycle was about to start and had huge implications for everyone involved. And we had a surge that peaked into the Ukraine invasion and we've been correcting. And most central banks think that's the end of inflation. I hate to break it to them. It's just the beginning. And we'll see it through oil. We'll see breaks higher, um, and, and I'm incredibly positive about whether it's oil, copper, whether it's precious metals. It's one of the few places that I think represents huge value, substantiated by the way commodities behaved in World War One and World War Two. So that's one of our core investment thesis with a huge amount of evidence as to where you should be, the entry points, and also how they behaved, how resource constriction has enacted in World War One and World War Two. So that's the first bit. The next bit is really what's happening to the dollar. And to answer that question, I'm going to have to say something that most Americans will be shocking, is that America has an empire. Its empire was far more subtle in that it allowed its constituents to feel they were free and it used the dollar to extract a taxation system on other countries which it brought home to sustain its debt and its economy. The problem with mature systems, and America is super mature, is just like all mature systems, they live off size and very small margins. So it doesn't take much before you squeeze the margin and the whole system rumbles and crumbles. And we're at that point. So as conflict becomes clear with hegemonic dynamics with China, just as it did for Sterling in 1914, expect it to depreciate. And so all our trades are set up to be short dollar pairs. 
and have been very successful. And I think the peak last year was probably the peak from which we are now declining in an ever accelerating move lower. Would it be fair to characterise the world at war that you see as being a sort of yin and yang basis where countries are both at peace and at war at the same time? And if so, are we doomed to live out a period of large-scale media disinformation and frequent tit-for-tat salami-sizing military attacks in cyberspace as well as elsewhere? I think that's what we have been living. That's the past. We're now in a far more kinetic phase of this conflict. So, no, I think it's it's going to be far worse than that, just as we've seen in Ukraine, and it was unthinkable. And I say it was unthinkable, but we did predict a global forecast of six months beforehand that there would be a 95% chance that Putin would invade Ukraine. And that was against all the odds when people didn't believe it was possible. So we have a good predictive record of not only when and how he did it, but going back to some of the details of how that conflict is unfolding. And so when we talk about escalation, it comes from a position that I often say when people laugh and say, you're a warmonger, or how can you say that? And I often turn and say, well, did you anticipate Putin invading Ukraine? And most of the people that don't think escalation is possible fit into that category. And once you're behind the curve in these things, you're always behind the curve. You can never get ahead of it. And core to that is that the majority of humans think a certain way. And a few humans think very differently. And I call them human predators. They're like human monsters. Their psychology, the way they perceive others, is as prey. And it's very difficult for the humans in the normal band to understand how dictators think. So we just project what we think onto them. And of course, we wouldn't do what they're about to do because they're fundamentally different. So to start making accurate calculus about the way hierarchies operate and autocracies operate in today's world, you've got to really study the psychology of their leadership. And it's so different from our own. It's so brutal and predatory, as we've seen Putin with a war that's cost both his people and Ukrainians 500,000 people of injured and dead and rising. So before people quickly say that's too much, don't think about it, it's important to reframe thought in a more realistic way to make the assessment, and especially with respect to what I call these human monsters that lead autocracies into conflict. In this extremely unsettled global environment, could such things as the rapid development of artificial intelligence and drone warfare eventually cause the human race to lose control of its own destiny? Oh, that's a question of our generation. And we were all brought up with the Terminator movies. And the idea that sort of the combination of AI and automatic weapon systems became lethal for mankind. And that is coming true in front of our eyes. I mean, AI is, I think, on track for some kind of sentient process much sooner than we think. And most of the programs I'm really concerned about are the military programs. And one of the areas that we're seeing in Ukraine in the question that makes uh, an armed force capable is shortening the kill cycle between finding a target and killing it and allocating a particular resource to do the killing. And the faster and the shorter that kill chain can be, the higher the tempo of conflict and the higher the conflict means a small force can destroy a large force. And prior to that, 
all over the system. You're now seeing AI systems gather data and information from multiple sources, whether it's social media of some Ukrainian behind Russian lines seeing a T-72 in their garden, and then the system looking at a radar track and looking at a you know, an EW signal and then triangulating it, then sending it back on the priority of targets and then allocating tube artillery or or other artillery to kill it. That's already real. And the next step is without doubt going to be giving drones automated systems because electronic warfare means you can't fly your drones through the cloud of discontrol because you shut down the command signals. So the next step will be giving it auto- autonomy. Autonomy then be controlled by a sentient AI system. And one thing I'm sure about is that human history is dotted in what I would call constructive creation. We destroy to create, and that's what wars are. They, we, we destroy our paradigms and we rebuild them in a more lateral, creative way. And any automatic, any computer would look at that as illogical. So they're going to look at us, I'd imagine, as very threatening in our own right. So yes, I think one of the great scary byproducts of this escalating conflict is that one side or the other creates AI, AI is suborned to weapon systems, and the system decides that we're actually more hostile than the enemy it was told to focus on. David, thank you for this fascinating, if worrying, insight into the services that are provided by Global Forecaster. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss more about your thoughts on the future of warfare and the development of new military weapons. It would also be interesting to hear in greater detail of your views on the global financial markets and your tactical investment ideas. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Global Forecaster Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with David Murren of Global Forecaster.